Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. In my endeavors for the last 15 years of uh, being both a teacher and a Buddhist uh, pastor, counselor, um, one of the most predominant themes that people want to address with me, well, probably the most, is relationship issues. Um, and then also issues with addiction. And then uh, issues with family. And then issues with work. And while they might seem to be entirely different, different arenas, in fact, uh, with any experience in working with people, the same underlying issues inevitably are lie at the root of all of those concerns. And uh, <clears throat> not surprisingly, given my background is in attachment theory, um, my academic studies were in uh, psychology. Um, Attachment theory is, uh, provides a perspective along with Buddhism, uh, early Buddhist tools on how we can address work-related anxiety and patterns that uh, lead to the experience of livelihood uh, very challenging, very, very difficult. So um, to, I, I could summarize it up front. Individuals who have early secure attachment experiences tend to do uh, not only in adult life, uh, they have an easier path, I should say, in finding a secure romantic relationship and they have easier relationship with family systems. But also studies show, countless studies stemming from the work of Mary Main and Philip Shaver, Mario McEulenser, and, uh, and uh, <clears throat> numerous others that um, there's a direct correlation between the, how secure attachment structures were early on in life and how we engage with work, whether we find fulfillment, whether uh, we can set boundaries at work, whether we uh, have a healthy emotional motivation underlying the way we work. So <clears throat> those with secure do well, those with insecure attachment, uh, due to the fact that literally the brain, its earliest experiences are based on uh, not getting one's needs met, that it primes certain behaviors, perspectives, and inclinations that result in very often long-term dissatisfaction with one's job or one's uh, in endeavors associated with livelihood. So uh, we're going to be tackling this first from the perspective of repetition compulsion. What the hell is that? Have uh, you been coming? to this class, you've heard me talk about repetition compulsion. It's a very important concept from any 
psychological perspective. And even in early Buddhism, the concept of anusayas uh, has a significant overlap with this idea. So repetition compulsion is repeating a traumatic event or an unhappy situation over and over and over again in one's adult life. And it's seemingly for friends of somebody who's stuck in repetition compulsion can seem exceedingly mysterious. Why would my friend who grew up with an emotionally unavailable father continually try to uh, get love from emotionally unavailable men? That seems like a ridiculous thing to do. Um, but there's actually unconscious, clear motivations that make this pattern of repeating painful events actually uh, understandable. Uh, it should be noticed, noted that the more traumatic or wounding an early experience in life, the more likely an individual's emotional development will be in some way derailed, slowed down, or in even some tragic case, cases stopped altogether. <clears throat> this is because the more painful an event early on in life, the brain fails, the left hemisphere of the brain is not mature enough to turn the experiences into a story or a narrative that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and context. And so the emotionally traumatic or painful are essentially stored in the right hemisphere, which has no clue that the experience is over, that it happened in the past. Unless you have a fully functioning left hippocampus that turns experiences into uh, stories, narratives um, that you can process and resolve and experience, <clears throat> your brain will still believe that the trauma is still going on. So this can happen either due to the age of an unpleasant event or the uh, how terrible the event was. It, you could be in your 30s or 40s in a car crash and the, the threat is so great that the sudden release, uh, the sudden triggering of the amygdala, the midbrain, the release of cortisol, the flooding of adrenaline, all that knocks your left hemisphere offline. You black out and you fail to turn the experience into something that has essentially a chronology and a context to it. And then afterwards, every time you get in the car, you will fully expect there to be another crash. When people who are in uh, extremely uh, vicious events in war come, come back where they see best friends blown up or they are horrifically injured, you can bring them back to the States, but they will still fully emotionally believe that any moment a bomb could go off or that any moment they could be shot at because that experience was never fully resolved and processed. But it doesn't have to be a trauma. It can be any disturbing emotional experience associated with early attachment. For us in our childhood years, if we cannot adequately connect with our caregivers for love, attention, um, soothing, and appreciation, then for the child, it feels like essentially what's been called a form of annihilation. 
because our entire brain is structured to attach. So subsequently, the right hemisphere always seeks the familiar. Your right hemisphere is what motivates your behaviors. It's what governs the way you attach to other people, the way you interact with other people socially. And the very same structure of the brain that essentially motivates core behaviors, implicit behaviors, like what kind of people we seek out in relationship, what kind of situations we gravitate towards to work, what kind of people we find uh, we choose for um, core uh, support or mentors at times, will be governed by the right hemisphere's drive for the familiar. The right hemisphere doesn't only want to connect, but it wants to connect in ways that feel predictable to it, even if what the prediction is is terrible for you. It will choose the familiar even if the familiar is painful because the right hemisphere does not like entirely new situations that require it to completely develop an entirely new set of coping strategies, perceptions, and ways of understanding. So it will go to the familiar. Children, as uh, let me read you what Vessel uh, van der Kolk, the great expert on trauma, wrote. War veterans will re-enlist as mercenaries after they've gone out of the war. Victims of incest may well become sex workers. Victims of childhood physical abuse will become self-mutilators. Others who have been abused will identify with their aggressors and repeat the events with other people. I, they will suddenly become aggressors and repeat early physical abuse. Individuals who have experienced early emotional wounds or traumas will, will experience emptiness, boredom, and anxiety when not involved in activities that are similar or familiar to the original trauma. So essentially, not only is it familiar, but we will feel bored or we cannot make sense of very often experiences that are dissimilar to early wounding events. Another concept that explains why we repeat painful experiences over and over and over again comes courtesy of Freud and it's still a very, very uh, enticing and interesting theory, which is that he believes that we reenact painful early experiences in adult life because this, we hope, will get it right. It's a wish fulfillment. We hope this time we will get the love, the attention, the care, the support that we didn't get early on when we needed it. And the underlying belief is if I act nicer, perform better, if I remain more vigilant, more attentive, more alert, if I simply am more polite or whatever, this time I won't get the abandonment that I got early on. Of course, the sad news is, is that we invariably will, if we're in repetition compulsion, choose people that no matter how nice we act, how much we try to work harder, stay more vigilant, or whatever, we will wind up with the exact same result. So it's, therein lies the repetition compulsion. It creates the illusion that we can somehow 
master a situation that cannot ever be won. Um, so early attachment wounds are not only invariably repeated in romantic relationships, but they're also, in my experience, very, very often and frequently repeated in the kind of jobs and workplaces one finds oneself in. And if not work, it will be in other interpersonal social environments. Um, those who are secure will wind up in jobs and workplaces and in interpersonal dynamics where they are seen, where they are appreciated, where their efforts are acknowledged, where there is a degree of uh, secure uh, attention and that's reliable, where, they, where the focus will not only be on mistakes, but will be primarily on all that the person's done. On the other hand, the insecure will, as uh, Masterson once said, uh, great psychologist, the people with insecure early attachments will somehow always gravitate to situations where they are not seen, where they are not appreciated, where they are not taken care of, where they are not acknowledged. It's, um, it's a, essentially an implicit where we go into different situations and if it's unfamiliar in a good way, we won't respond. It won't match our coping strategies that we established in early life to survive. But if we go into a situation where we are not going to be seen, where we are not going to be appreciated, it totally activates all of those early coping strategies. And uh, so many of the coping strategies that we will rely on will look great to employers, even though they're killing us. That's one of the most sad things about contemporary capitalism, is that the very tendencies that people develop to survive in insecure attachment situations where they're not getting seen or enough love or enough care is the very qualities that a lot of employers look for. What do they say, you know, we want somebody who's alert, who can multitask, who's always on, who's, you know, uh, somebody who can handle and be self-reliant and not need too much guidance and all that. Well, that's exactly describing an insecure child. That's, about, that's exactly describing somebody who is not in a secure situation. When you can't allow yourself to feel and process your emotions where you are driven towards perf perfectionism or relying on catastrophizing to do work where you are driven to work harder and harder longer just to get a sense that there's a possibility that you'll be acknowledged where there's a poor work-life separation all of these describes the child that doesn't have a secure base but all those are very often the same qualities that are being looked for and what will make people lovable but for their companies and will be rewarded by employers. So, um, boy, this is a happy talk, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of specialize in the uh, anxiety-based talks. <laughs>
So secure people wind up uh, in jobs where they're appreciated. They will fo sustain their focus easily. They'll find tasks pleasurable. They won't they'll have a good work-life ratio. They won't stay late. They will, unless it's absolutely necessary, but most of the time they will take care of themselves. They're not driven to competency as a way to compensate for early lack of a secure base. But people who are insecure will be driven for a need to compensate for this lack of I'm okay, I'll be taken care of. There are people that will rally to my side and um, will always be there to help me process negative experiences. If you don't have that feeling of a secure base, that you are important to others, that you will be loved and, and held if you know bad things happen, including losing a job, then uh, we will be driven to uh, essentially try to create that secure base by working harder than everyone else or by staying anxious or by pushing ourselves or by having an inability to disengage with our job, we a feeling we can't afford to think about anything else, even when we're not there. Very often when I work with people who have workaholic or perfectionistic tendencies, if we follow the, un the connection between the thinking to the underlying emotional motivations, the implicit beliefs that are guiding the behaviors, it's something like, if I don't do everything that I'm handed, I will be seen as inadequate. And if I'm seen as inadequate by others, I will be discarded. And if I'm discarded, I will end up alone. And I will end up without anyone taking care of me or interested in me. I'll wind up, I'll, I'm essentially at the core, unlovable by others unless I constantly prove myself. So this compensation also can be not only for this lack of a secure base, but also if we have insecure attachments, then it'll often work will be a compensation for the lack of secure relationship in our romantic life. We'll be making up sometimes for this felt sense of there's nobody there. It's anxiety driven because there's always this implicit th felt threat by people who have especially insecure attachment at work, that if I fail, if I lose my job, then I will wind up not taken care for alone. Uh, that you know, even people with uh, avoided attachment feel the same. So there can be this this ongoing threat that that's completely, of course, illogical. That believes that. Unless I make this work, you know, I'll, I won't get another job or I won't ever be happy again or I won't have any chance of succeeding. Um, the brain, you would wish that the brain would be set up to counter this, these illogical beliefs that are driving the behavior, that the left hemisphere would be able, the adult part of the brain would be able to essentially jump in and say, hey, wait a second, you know, you're being ridiculous. You're, you have obviously survived up until now. You're not going to wind up homeless on the street. You're not going to wind up. Nobody's going to universally think that you're a failure or useless or whatever. But 
Sadly, the left hemisphere does the exact opposite. Whenever there's underlying anxiety, the, the representative left hemisphere, which generates an ex language and explains why we do the things we do, the left hemisphere will jump up and go, this is absolutely true, but it will translate it into something that's a little bit more realistic. Generally, in my experience, financial insecurity. No matter how much likelihood that somebody survived up until now, no matter how much evidence that they will be able, that they've always been able to pay their rent, that they haven't been, you know, you know, that they haven't, you know, died up until now, uh, the left hemisphere will go, I, I, I won't have enough money, I'll wind up on the streets. Here's where I bring up my own personal experience because it's important for me to disclose my own so that we, we all know that we're in the same boat to some degree. Uh, in uh, When I got sober uh, 25 years ago, shortly in my first, I, I think, year and a half in sobriety, I got a very good job that out of the blue, which was kind of remarkable because I had been, uh, I had lost pretty much every job that I had when I was in my bottom through the 10 years preceding it. Uh, but I got this very good job and I immediately had imposter syndrome. What's imposter syndrome? The belief that no matter how hard we work, no matter how uh, much we've been showing up and tackling that will be seen as a fraud and that there's something deep in ourselves that's fully um, that other people can see that the, if it's revealed they'll just want to get rid of us so I fully had imposter syndrome it's based on an early uh, attachment abandonment with my father uh, who is a, an alcoholic himself and so I had when a child doesn't get secure attachment very often, it develops what's called core shame. There's something unlovable about me. There's something damaged about me. And if I'm not careful, other people will see it and they will discard me too. So as a result of this, this imposter syndrome and this insecurity, I worked for 18 months without ever taking any break. I didn't take a vacation day, I didn't take a day off, because I fully believed that if I did, somehow they would become aware that I wasn't doing enough. And, you know, of course, detaching from it, not being there would trigger my anxiety more at the time. So the sense that if I did prioritize my self-care and take a break, they would see oh, he's not really doing that much after all, let's fire him. And then if that happened, I fully believed when I asked what was going on beneath that, well, there was this belief that I would never get another job and therefore I would wind up homeless and there I would, I would be killed mm -hmm. on the street. So asking for a day off was a life-threatening <laughs> endeavor for me. But we have to really dig to get that chain of beliefs, implicit beliefs, so that we can find out really the underlying emotional fear that's motivating uh, implicit behaviors. Implicit behaviors are things we do. We don't know why we do it. They're just driven, they're automatic, they're ingrained. So the long-term results of work stress is horrific. Not just from a psychological perspective of lack of fulfillment, lack of self-actualization, uh, ongoing 
uh, unresolved anxiety disorders and so forth. But physiologically, having your sympathetic nervous system engaged for eight, 10 hours a day, even a low degree of hypervigilance, even a low degree of having to walk, you know, essentially have this sense that unless I'm fully on or always, you know, on top of it, that chronic activation of sympathetic nervous system synonymous with chronic stress means that you will have a surfeit of a surplus, I should say, a surplus of, of cortisol, which is exceedingly unhealthy for you. It will actually lead to uh, damaged immune systems, uh, diabetes, arteriosclerosis, heart problems, and even studies show that chronic stress can lead to cancer. And I've certainly seen that uh, over the years uh, in the work I did up until 15 years ago was a very, very stressful industry. And there was just staggering amounts of people who succumbed to cancer very, very young in life as a result. So um, trying to use logic, if we have emotionally driven, uh, stressful, anxious, uh, workaholic, or just uh, uh, dysregulated relationships with work will not work because your right hemisphere, which guides your behaviors, is immune to trying to be logical with it. So trying to tell yourself, you know what, I've got to work less, this is killing me, uh, generally doesn't work. Trying to be logical with anxiety-based behaviors is generally leads to just again and again uh, failure because the part of the brain you're trying to reach is immune to logic. However, there are ways directly to address it. Um, and they're all involved with behaviors that are very simple to do all the way through psychological tools that are <clears throat> require more effort. So the easiest one is that it's very important after work to insert some kind of ritual where we disconnect from the entire body and attentional states of mind that we've been in at work. Even if you like your work, it's important to have a ritual after work where you essentially completely get out of the focused left hemispheric fixating on a screen or on a tablet or on something we're dealing with to a much more broad right hemispheric perspective where you take in safety cues and take in uh, cues that essentially allow you to get entirely out of the fix it, solve it, get it done state of mind. It's really important for us to do that. Um, inserting a routine like taking a walk in a park, sitting by a river, uh, uh, walking an unfamiliar way back home from a job, anything that forces us to look up away from a screen actually deactivates your sympathetic nervous system. It forces your right, hem to, right hemisphere to engage. Two, titration. Anxiety remains active so long as we continue to move fast, walk fast, talk fast. The more we can slow down, 
at times when you slow down, when you move slower, slower exhalations, it actually sends a message up to the midbrain, especially the right amygdala and hypothalamus saying, I'm not in any threat anymore. I'm not in any danger. Because if I was, I wouldn't be moving this slowly. Literally, the right hand will not have any clue if you tell it you're okay, but if you show it you're okay by moving slower, it will actually get the message. So when I used to work, actually, in advertising, up until 15 years ago, while I was getting my Buddhist teacher training, it was weird. I was getting Buddhist teacher training and working in an advertising agency, but I would literally walk purposely slower to meetings. I would literally, after an interaction, go and look out a window. I would literally insert pauses that I knew would switch off the sympathetic nervous system so I could survive in that unholy industry. Three, um, find the underlying emotional belief, which I showed you, you know, it's invariably if we keep asking, and what will that mean? You know, so if you literally have an emotionally driven behavior, like I can't, I can't leave at a reasonable time, I have to stay later, I've got so much on my plate, then we might ask, and what will that mean? And then you say, well, then it won't all get done. And what will that mean? Well, it means that, that I'll get in trouble, or that people will see I'm not doing everything, or that I'm somehow failing. And what will that mean? Well, then it'll mean that people will eventually see that I'm not good enough. Ah, now we're getting hot. And what does that mean? Keep digging until you get to the, un, the irrational core that motivates these behaviors that seem logical until you really investigate it. And when we expose that, that sort of underlying toxic self-belief, it becomes easier to step back and say, hey, wait a second. This is actually not being driven by anything that's realistic. This is being driven by a, uh, essentially a self-esteem failure. Um, most importantly is the cultivation of a secure base. A secure base, the feeling that there's someone or a being there, an entity, a spirit, anything that is there that cares about you, that will be there no matter what happens, that will come to your side, that it will never abandon you, makes it so much easier to pull back from anxiety-driven behaviors. There's been wonderful studies done with the Daniel P. Brown's Ideal Parent Protocol, but I'm gonna to tonight use an earlier Buddhist practice that's almost identical, called David Nusati, where we visualize an entity based on a friend or someone who's there that will create a felt sense of not being alone, being taken care of. The more you address a lack of a secure base in your life, the less likely you are to be driven to compensate for that lack by trying to prove yourself constantly to others. And then also we're gonna do as part of the meditation besides the secure base, we're also going to be doing a little bit of what's called Marana Sati, which is in acknowledging that we only have a finite time on life, that we're all mortal. It, 
the Buddha talked how important it was to constantly take stock on what's really important for us to take a look back on our life and what has created a real sense of value a real sense of purpose or a real sense of beauty and very often when we do that in a real honest way we can see how little <laughs> much of our work that we get anxious about has anything to do with that that gives our life meaning or value and when we see that it becomes also easier to disconnect because if you realize what gives your life a real sense of value purpose self-actualization and it's not in you know the things you're worrying about then it's time to shift what you think about so thanks for listening I hope something in there was interesting if not come back next week <laughs> maybe it won't be interesting again but at least it'll be different so uh, now we're going to sit we're going to put these ideas into practice <coughs> Feel your way into a good posture with your eyes closed. You don't want to visualize your body. You want to feel from the inside out. And you want to essentially uh, just allow your the sensations that let you know you have a head, a chest and shoulders, sit bones, and just try to bring them into a nice alignment where there seems to be a good balance of those sensations. You don't have to think your way into posture. And then the only effort we're going to do is we're going to slightly imagine you could lift your chin like two inches up, just a gradual amount, but you're doing that just to prevent your head from slouching in front of your chest. And that's all the effort. Just lift your head, just the front of the, your face, just enough so that you won't slouch in front of your chest. And that's it. The rest is going to be progressively relaxing and soothing the body. So we're going to first take a full in-breath through the nose and squinch the muscles in the face, clenching the jaw, furrowing the brow, tightening the micro-muscles around the eyes. And then as you breathe out slowly through the mouth, just release all those muscles. All the cranial nerves, the highest setting of the brain, the ventral parasympathetic expresses our emotions through the face. And the more you can relax the musculature in the face, the more you engage the rest and digest system. And now another full in-breath, lifting the shoulders up and then rotating them back, opening up the chest, dropping the, uh, <coughs> the uh, 
shoulders with the out breath and opening up the chest, keeping it nice and open, relaxed. It's another way of telling the midbrain I'm not in any danger because when people are in danger, they tend to go into the startle posture where we clench all the muscles in the chest and contract the shoulders. Plus you're engaging your vagal break here, slowing your heart rate. And then for the third in-breath, breathe into the belly so you feel the belly bloating out like a beach ball as you breathe in till it's almost just ridiculously extended. And as you breathe out, relax and soften the belly and abdominal breathing is synonymous with rest and digest states when you're in any stress you will breathe with your chest you'll feel the movement in your chest you'll be gulping air but when you're at home relaxing safe then people's bellies actually move more. So try to incline yourself towards abdominal breathing. Just feel at first, don't, don't push so much the belly, just feel the breath and the belly. And the, the longer the exhalations, the more you engage the parasympathetic, relax, rest, so we're going to sit here and we're going to just keep adjusting. So just continually with each in-breath, breathing into the belly, relaxing the chest, inviting the muscles around the eyes to soften, encouraging the eyes to settle, inclining your exhalations to be easily as long, if not hopefully much longer than the inhalations. The longer your out-breath, the more relaxed. And so we can just stay here, fully present with the body that's been keeping us alive. All the times we're on our computers or phones or engaged with work or obligations, responsibilities. There's a body that's been keeping us alive. And not only do we return to it, but we uh, it's the way back to landing in our life and really appreciating coming to a complete stop. That feeling of when we arrive at a cherished destination and we don't want to think at all about anything that's happened or happening back home or anywhere else. As a famous Tibetan Buddhist monk 
said, I think his name was Tularopa at the check-in, but he said, uh, letting go of everything that's happened in the past, it's gone, everything that might happen in the future, anything that's not happening right now, not figuring anything out, not trying to make anything happen, nowhere to go, nothing to do, just allowing yourself to finally land in your life, come to a complete stop. The mind is so often racing ahead of the body. And if any thought tries to or succeeds in pulling you very far away, no matter how far away you've gone from the present, you can always relax and come back.
I'd like you to visualize being with a friend who really conveys a real sense of liking to be with you, a real sense of joy when you connect, someone who's reliably available in your life. And if that's easy, bring them to mind. If that's difficult, just allow yourself to visualize entirely from your imagination. Who would be the perfect friend or the perfect companion? This could be an actual person or in the early Buddhist Devanusati practice, just a sense of a spiritual presence. Try to put aside any rational, judgmental mind and just allow yourself to creatively visualize a spirit that would always be by your side, not in any invasive way, just something that you could summon that would care, that would not in any way judge or shame you when you were struggling, a spirit that cares nothing but creating the sense of not being alone. You can reflect on times in your life where you've had someone show any of these qualities to create an attribute that fits this secure presence, this reliable, available, secure presence. And at this point, if it feels right for you, put a hand on your heart center. And just allow yourself to feel that warmth. For some people, it also might be nice to put a hand on the back of your neck, another hand, or just what feels right. And just feel the presence of care, warmth. Visualize this self-care, this attribute of kindness, of sense of being deserving of love and care.
and it being a part of your mind that you can summon. And just allowing this, any felt sense of what it's like to be cared about to be, to matter in the mind of another. Just allow that feeling in your body to become known. And then asking yourself, as I look back on my life, what has really mattered to me? What has really mattered? What has brought a real sense of beauty, joy, what has made me feel really purposeful, what experiences, what connections, what relationships, what achievements or creative endeavors have I done that really create a feeling of a life that has meaning and value. And just anything you, you feel really deeply proud about that is true in the deepest sense. And then when you have a sense of what those endeavors were that gave life its truest feeling of weight and meaning, just know that that's where the authentic path leads and is for you. That worrying about anything else, allow that sense of import to things outside that which give life beauty and meaning Just allowing those other issues to settle. So in a moment or two, I'm just going to ring the bell just allow yourself to very slowly open your eyes, look at the ground in front of you, and try to integrate sight, 
back into your awareness in such a way that you bring with you any feelings or really deeper sense of insight or just any awareness of your body that you've connected with. 